You are now listening to Macrodose. Hello and welcome to our first episode of Macrodose Extra, where we go in-depth with some of the leading voices from the world of economics. Our guest today is Yanis Varoufakis. Yanis is an academic, economist and politician who served as the Greek Minister of Finance from January to July 2015 in the Syriza government of Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras. He's currently a sitting member of the Greek Parliament for Mira 25, a progressive political party which he founded with others back in 2018. Yanis is also a founder of the Progressive International, seeking to ally and organise progressive movements worldwide, and DiEM25, a transnational movement to reform the European Union. I began by asking him for his thoughts on the current state of the UK economy, about the disastrous few months of Tory infighting, and what we learned from the brief tenure of Liz Truss and Trussonomics. Well, to begin with, I, I don't think it's only of a narrow UK interest uh, what happened in the UK. I believe that uh, it's a cautionary tale uh, for the rest of us as well. So I'm very pleased to be talking about this. Okay, Boris Johnson, before he was uh, overthrown uh, as a result of party gate and all that, tried to contain Rishi Sunak's austerity 2.0 agenda. Sunak was um, towing the treasury line that after the pandemic and the largesse, as they saw it, of fiscal policy, um, that austerity 2.0 was the way to go. Boris Johnson, being a more astute politician than Rishi Sunak, said, no, this is political poison in a country that is so austerity averse, uh, and kept him at bay. Then we had the decapitation of <laughs> Boris Johnson and the contest between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. Uh, it was clear which way Rishi Sunak was going to go. Liz Truss uh, decided, this is my interpretation, that uh, the way to defeat Rishi Sunak was by adopting a quite different agenda, an anti-austerity agenda, uh, an anti-austerity but completely Tory agenda, in other words, largesse, but on behalf of the um, the, upper, <laughs> the upper class. So, you know, massive tax cuts, uh, expansionary fiscal policy in the interests of the very few. The rank and file of the Tory party has never seen a war or a tax cut for the rich that he didn't like. So it was a, a winning strategy for Liz Truss. Now, Liz Truss was always going to slam on the brakes and impose her own austerity uh, upon the many once she became prime minister. Uh, so it, <laughs> there was this timing um, difference between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak was going to, uh, to, to, to do it the old-fashioned Thatcherite way. Austerity first, this is what Thatcher did, Austerity first, and then tax cuts for the rich. Uh, if you recall, austerity was introduced very soon after the April 1979 uh, Margaret Thatcher victory. And then it was only in 1982, 1983, that the serious tax cuts were introduced by Thatcher. Uh, so this is what Sunak was going to do, even though Liz Truss tried to present herself as Thatcher Mark II. Um, so it was just a question of timing. Would austerity come first or would tax cuts for the rich come first? Uh, and Liz Truss knew that the only way to beat Rishi Sunak was by adopting tax cuts first. So this is the delicious irony. The strategy that allowed her 
to win was the strategy that ended up in her very, very quick decapitation <laughs> after the market turmoil. Now, the market turmoil happened for reasons that uh, uh, we now know quite well, um, and these are two. First, it so happened, and that was bad luck for Listras, uh, that uh, the bond market in the United States, the treasury market, was already um, having a tantrum, a fit. It was in a volatility spike, as the financiers say. Pension funds in Britain, as we now know, had already uh, committed themselves to uh, a wager that uh, relied on UK bonds, gilts, in order to hedge the future. So the combination of the turmoil in the American public debt market, the treasury market, and the wages of the pension funds, the private pension funds in Britain, conspired to combine with the Liz Truss choice of leaving austerity for much later and going for, the, for a big spending um, spree that effectively lavished a lot of money upon the upper bourgeoisie in the United Kingdom. That was the combination that led to her demise and to the return of Rishi Sunak uh, that went from one extreme Tory uh, assault on the, on the many to the other, the opposite, extreme assault on the many. So he reversed the tax cuts for the rich, but slapped upon the many um, a very harsh austerity 2.0, which he apparently um, uh, sought the endorsement of from <laughs> a certain Mr. George Osborne. Uh, so, in the end, what we now have is the perpetuation of the same model that Margaret Thatcher introduced in 1979, but in a manner which is completely at a dead end. And this is how I will uh, sum up my answer to your question, James. Thatcher had one thing going for her in the early 1980s. There was a lot of property that belonged to the state or to the local councils, which was privatized and financialized. So Thatcher began the process of financializing the working class by selling council houses uh, to people that um, used to rent them for a pittance uh, and selling to them at a very low price which they secured by getting a mortgage. Local housing, council housing was financialized. Then in addition to that, immediately after that, she started selling shares to public utilities like British Gas, Electricity, um, you know, the TSB Bank and so on. Uh, those were all sold at a price more or less 50% of their market value. So the members of the working class who happened to have jobs and access to the banking system were financialized, and that created a major split in the working class in Britain. Uh, but of course, at some point, this whole financialization process hit the rocks in 2008. And ever since, the way that uh, this 
effectively Ponzi scheme because it was a pyramid. It was a Ponzi scheme that was always going to break down at some point. The way it was maintained was through deflationary policies after 2009. Initially by Gordon Brown and then much more so by George Osborne, uh, the idea was that um, the creature, the economic creature that Thatcher had created and Blair had um, taken to new heights, because Blair effectively adopted the same model of financialization, uh, after the crash of 2008, the only way to keep this thing going was by creating a deflationary dynamic because a Ponzi scheme based on housing, primarily on housing, can survive falling wages or stagnating wages and falling prices or stagnating prices. It cannot survive increasing prices because increasing prices will uh, mean increasing interest rates. Increasing interest rates mean the bursting of the bubble of housing. So once the pandemic, the second part of the pandemic, um, unleashed inflationary forces, then the question was, will the Bank of England raise interest rates to a level that equilibrate the money markets, which in my estimation is around 6%. But if they do that, the housing market bubble bursts completely. And then the whole Tory political economy, Tory new labor political economy just collapses. Or go back to austerity. And this is what the whole market system and Rishi Sunak together conspire to ensure. Now we have austerity 2.0, the purpose of which, the primary purpose of which is to keep extending and pretending the Ponzi scheme, which is based on the housing market of the UK. At least that's my take. No, it's, it's very useful to have it laid out like that because there's, um, and, and this is my second question, I suppose, or you'll get there, which is that, look, uh, austerity, if you're in Greece, austerity is obvious why it's happening. It's economically irrational, but it's happening because it's it's imposed on Greece for, for the period of the 2010s. This is the, the thing that happens there. Austerity in Britain is a choice. It's something that the government in 2010 says we are going to do this. And, and you go round and round, lots and lots of different explanations. Well, is it ideology? Is it just something they want to do? What you get with Truss, I thought, was a, a demonstration that that can't be the explanation. There was an alternative Tory strategy there. I mean, you said that 6% was your expectation for the interest rate that would equilibrate uh, the, the markets in Britain. I mean, that's, that's almost the same as Patrick Minford, one of Truss's advisors, who said we will need interest rates 6 or 7%. Yes, it might crash the housing market, but this is good because we'll get proper capitalism out the other side. So there was a sort of aggressive attempt to try something different that we're dragged straight back into instead uh, the austerity doom loop. So it's not ideology so much. It's the, the, the structures of capitalism itself. And, and that was my, my kind of second question, is that once you start to think about those structures, you, you've written, I think, quite persuasively about how those structures have changed around uh, the cloud, around the rise of big data, around you know, the sort of integration with global system here that works like this. The British story doesn't seem to fit into that at all well. Like recent events is trying to do something different that doesn't fit in with the structure of capitalism. Do we now have a capitalism that has to push through that kind of deflationary spiral everywhere if it can? It faces inflation, but it wants a deflationary spiral. Or is there, is there a sort of different dynamic that we're starting to see emerge globally? Well, before we go to the, uh, to the cloud capital story, to the cloud capitalism story, let me say that as a general statement, that austerity is always a choice, uh, even if it's imposed. Somebody chooses to impose austerity. Austerity will never work for the purposes 
that um, those who impose it claim that they're imposing it for. It's Austerity will always fail, has always failed, everywhere in the world, in every period of the capitalist experience, uh, to achieve the objective of um, containing debt. That's what they, they constantly claim, that you know we need to tighten the belt in order to stop debt from consuming us. Austerity has always failed to do that. So it's always a choice. Uh, what austerity amounts to, in reality, is class war. It's really very simple. Uh, you mentioned Greece. Well, austerity visited us here in Greece in 2010. But austerity had been practiced from 2009 in Germany before it came here. So if that was, a, if there was ever uh, austerity, as they say, a war of choice, austerity of choice, that was Germany. I mean, Germany is a country which, unlike Britain, and unlike Greece, is a surplus country. It is a country with a massive trade surplus, with uh, a structural government, federal government budget surplus, with a surplus in its uh, financial sector, so more capital floods into Germany that comes out of Germany. So it's a country which is effectively swimming in dough, <laughs> in surpluses, and yet it chooses right at the time of the financial crisis, and actually before that, under Gerhard Schroeder, the Social Democrats at the time, uh, to practice impressive levels of austerity. What was that all about? Well, the German capitalist, uh, mercantilist model of capitalism is based on three pillars, one of which is um, stagnating wages, achieving competitiveness through stagnating wages. The only way of ensuring that wages stagnate is through fluctuating levels of austerity, sometimes harsh austerity, sometimes softer austerity, but austerity nevertheless, because austerity is the means by which state and capital, state and capital, contain the bargaining power of wage earners. So having said that, in the case of, of the United Kingdom, you mentioned Patrick Mingford being more or less in agreement with me. Well, this is the tragedy that I've been facing since 2008. Very often I say things that sound similar to what libertarians, uh, neoliberals say. But that's because of the nature of the, the crisis. <laughs> if you have an inflation rate of more than 10%, like you do now in the UK, there are only two ways in which you can contain it. One is to attack the monopoly power of large corporations, of supermarkets, of the energy uh, companies, of the utilities, of uh, the banks. Huh? You need to contain the price-cost margin. You need to have to find political mechanisms by which to say to them, you know what? No, there's going to be a price ceiling. There are ways of doing that. There's no doubt about that, especially when it comes to energy. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I mean, these are, these are not markets. These are pseudo-markets created by the state. It's not that, you know, the, the, the state intervenes in a market. When it comes to energy, the state has created a market. <laughs> it's, it's a state artifact. So the state can easily come and say, look, you know what? You're not going to charge people more than 5% of the average cost of producing a megawatt hour. They could do that instead of uh, subsidizing, using, you know, borrowed money to subsidize. So one way of containing inflation is by political means. The other one is through monetary policy. 
So what Minford says, oh, of course, he's completely against um, any kind of political intervention to, con to, 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 to shrink, to diminish price cost margins. I'm completely in favor of that. What I am saying is that if you are not going to shrink price cost margins, if you're not going to attack the monopoly power of the conglomerates, the, the only other way of containing inflation is uh, either through austerity or through interest rates. Now, um, so Patrick Minford and I are saying the same thing in that regard, where we are completely clashing, is that my view is that there is a far better way of containing inflation, that is by attacking the market power of the conglomerates. Moving on to the question of how does all this stuff, this debate on monetary policy, on fiscal policy, how is this juxtaposed against the developments in the capitalist mode of production? Uh, and here it depends on how one understands what has been going on in the last 10-15 years. Uh, there are friends and comrades and colleagues of mine who believe that um, capitalism has not changed that much in the last 15 years. It's a question of degree. Yes, there is uh, a boost in the power of uh, companies like Amazon that uh, have the digital means, the cloud-based technologies with which to monopolize markets more than Walmart or Tesco used to. Uh, but more or less, we're talking about the same beast um, that evolves and different forces emerge to different degrees. Or you can look at the world the way I look at it. The way I look at it, James, <laughs> you may have heard of that, uh, is something that is a way that, that shocks me as well. Um, I have come to the conclusion, which is a very controversial conclusion, that um, in the same way that 1991, the collapse of the, social, the former socialist countries, of really existing communism or socialism, as we used to say back then, um, was a permanent and irreversible defeat for the left, all sorts of the left, the communist left, the social democratic left, and so on and so forth. Let's face it, we have never recovered as the left since 1991. Similarly, I think that capitalism was dealt a major defeat in 2008, from which it will never recover. And what we now have is a different mode of production, which is emerging out of capitalism. Wherever we look, there is no doubt. Wherever you look out of the window in London, me here in Aegina, we see capitalism. There's no doubt about that. Capitalism is everywhere. But, James, if you and I were sitting together in a room somewhere in Britain in the 1780s, everywhere we looked, we would, look, we would see feudalism in the 1780s. Everywhere we looked, we would see there was just some pockets of capitalism in Glasgow, in Liverpool, in Manchester, in Birmingham, and maybe in Amsterdam. That's it. Yeah? The rest of the world was completely feudal. But what I think is happening today is something rather similar. The capitalism is everywhere. Capital has completely and utterly triumphed over democracy, over socialism, over every, every other force. But capital has now acquired a new variant, which I called cloud capital. Uh, algorithmic cloud-based capital, which is... Um, upending capitalism itself. It's operating like a virus which is killing the, 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 itself, the body, the, uh, 
a corpus in which it survives. And, and let me be a little, more, a little bit more succinct and, succinct and clear on what I mean. Capitalism has undergone many transformations. It's become unrecognizable from one transformation to the, to the other. Uh, think about it, you know, you had 19th century, rather competitive capitalism, and you had monopoly capitalism at the turn of the 20th century, then you had the war economy, then you had Bretton Woods, which was a centrally planned global financial system with capital controls and fixed exchange rates. Then you had the collapse of that, you had financialization, globalization. Uh, then you had the, the period of quantitative easing when central banks kept everything going together. Every variety of capitalism that I just mentioned is very different to every other. But all of them had two common features that made them capitalism. Two pylons, two foundations. One was markets. In contradistinction to feudalism, where most economic activity was taking place outside of markets, peasants worked, the, the lord would uh, send the sheriff over to uh, extract a certain percentage of the harvest. That, that, there was no market there. This was just pure extraction. Hmm? Markets were peripheral in feudalism. Under capitalism, the labor process, land, capital, everything, including women's wombs, <laughs> was marketized, commodified. Everything went through markets. That was one, markets. The second pylon, foundation of capitalism, was profits. The profit was what made the system run, it lubricated the system, was the fuel of the system. Under feudalism, it was rent. Under capitalism, it was profit. All varieties of capitalism, whether it was, you know, Henry Ford and Thomas Edison, whether it was, you know, Goldman Sachs or the, the baker, the brewer and the butcher, to quote Adam Smith. It was profit. My view is that over the last 10, 15 years, we have both profit and markets being dethroned as central to the extractive, exploitative system which we live under globally. What replaced profits? Central bank money. Because of the way in which the G7, G20, after April of 2009, refloated capitalism, financial markets, by minting anything between 15 and $30 trillion of central bank money, depending on how you measure it. That quantity of money even if they stop producing more of it now because of the inflationary part we're experiencing, it is that quantity of money which is driving capital accumulation, not profits. And you can see the major disconnect between profitability on the one hand and valuations and investment. A company like Uber never made a profit, for instance. Okay? If it wasn't for central bank money, there would be no Uber, to put it very simply. Okay, so if I'm right, this is part A of my hypothesis. Central bank money has replaced profit as the fuel and the lubricant of the exploitative global system. What about markets? Well, my view is that they are being replaced too by what is commonly known as e-commerce. I call it cloud capital. When you visit Amazon.com, you exit the market. And this is where the hypothesis gets controversial because there are quite a few friends and colleagues and comrades who say to me, Jens, what are you talking about? It is a market. Amazon is a market. You enter Amazon, there are sellers, there are buyers. And okay, it's a digital market, but it's still a market. Maybe it's monopolized. It's a monopolized market by Jeff Bezos. Well, no, 
I disagree. It is not a market. Because what we have in mind when, when we think of a market, take a market town. Even one which has been completely cornered and purchased by one person. Imagine Rupert Murdoch <laughs> buying it a market town, you know, Shrewsbury or somewhere, eh? and buying every, every building, everything. Still, when you, James, and I walk down together, the, the, the high street of that Rupert Murdoch ville, <laughs> we still, you know, we can talk to one another. We can get together with other buyers. Maybe we can all decide, you know, you know fuck Murdoch. We're not going to buy anything from here. We're going, we are out of here. We can organize a consumer boycott. We can, you know, we look at the shops. We can have a discourse. Even if every single shop belongs to Rupert Murdoch, right? When you and I enter Amazon.com, if you enter Amazon.com using your computer and me using my computer or my phone or whatever, even if we type exactly the same thing in, we get different products that are thrown at us. So it is the equivalent of you and I walking down the street. Maybe we're training our eyes in the same direction, but we're seeing different things. And moreover, we can't talk to one another. Not without the intermediation of the same algorithm, which does all the buying and all the selling. As a producer in Amazon.com, a seller, a vendor, you are a vassal capitalist. You are not a real capitalist because you can only gain access to buyers that the algorithm belonging to Jeff Bezos decides you can gain access to. And you can only gain the kind of access that the algorithm wants you to have. And to complete the sale, you have to pay a fee of 30%, 30% standard fee to the owner of the algorithm. That, for me, is not profit. This is not, you are a vassal capitalist. You are not an independent capitalist working, operating in the market, not even in a monopolized market. And this is the equivalent of ground rent in the digital space, which I call cloud rent, that the vassal capitalist space. As a consumer, as I said, you have no capacity to communicate with other consumers. So essentially, this is not a market. This is an, a, a, an intermediation between sellers and buyers achieved in a cloud fief. It's like a fiefdom, but it's a cloud fiefdom which is run on the basis of the same cloud capital, which, let me remind our listeners, is running Alexa. Alexa is a little device sitting on your desk, which you are training to train you, to train it, to train you, to give it the information that it needs in order to give you impressive suggestions about what you book to buy or what music to read or what gadget to purchase, so that then you are very suggestible to its next uh, suggestion. And this is the same capital, cloud capital, which also drives the proletarian working in an Amazon warehouse who carries a little device on him or her, speeding up his or her proletarian work. Now that is not capitalism. This is a new mode of production where exploitation of the proletarian is intensified in a way that Charlie Chaplin described beautifully in modern times. So that's not new. Well, what is new is that the same algorithm that intensifies the, the productivity of the proletarian is driving us as consumers to produce data for the company that enriches its cloud capital. So this is the first time in the history of capitalism or post-capitalism, as I would say, 
where you have capital accumulation not going through the labor process, the wage labor process. Because when you post a review on Amazon, you're adding to the cloud capital without being a wage laborer, without being a proletarian. So you have proletarians adding to cloud capital, you have non-proletarians, consumers adding to the cloud capital, and then you have vassal capitalists, you know, who are um, there under the aegis and tyranny of cloud capital. So now there's a division between cloud capital and analog capital. And this is the era of cloud capital. I could call it cloudalism, I call it techno-feudalism because it's closer to feudalism. Now, this is increasingly taking over. Uh, the only country that has non-US-based uh, um, cloud capital, of course, is China. They have created their own. They have Alibaba instead of Amazon. And now you have clones of Amazon everywhere. In your country, in my country, in Indonesia, in Malaysia. Even uh, um, smallholders on the roadside in Indonesia... The ones who have a little cart and they sell SIM cards and, you know, cans of Coke. And they are being taken over by cloud capital, by firms that contract them to sell through their apps. So what does this mean regarding the earlier discussion we had, fiscal policy, monetary, monetary yeah. policy? Well, what it means is that if cloud capital can affect such a magnificent accumulation of wealth in the hands of the cloud capitalists or cloudalists, then the system, the whole system becomes even more unstable than it was because aggregate demand shrinks even further. And therefore, the capacity of fiscal policy and monetary policy to ameliorate for the crisis that this instability engenders, uh, it diminishes. So people like Rishi Sunak and Mitsotakis here in Greece and Olaf Scholz in, the, in, in Germany become even more uh, subdued by the power, not of markets, but a form of capital which is defeating markets. I mean, there's a lot to potentially uh, unpack there. I think one of the things that, that, and this is a slightly more theoretical line, but I think it gets you back to the question of agency and what you might do about it. I suppose the... the one rejoinder is it's not that unusual in capitalism to have accumulation taking place without a formal market, without me going off or you going off to work and you work and somebody else makes a profit from this and there's a labor market and a labor process and all the rest. Like the, There have definitely been periods of time under capitalism where you simply go off and you just take something. I mean, this is uh, Marx's good old primitive accumulation, that this is an extractive process that you go and find something non-capitalist and you take wealth out of it. And this, this is crucial to the development of capitalism. And what you've described sounds quite a lot like that, rather than something that's a definitively new mode of production. No, I don't agree with the last part. I agree with everything you said until the very end. True, primitive accumulation was always part of the manner in which the dynamic of capital accumulation um, grew. So capital accumulation was increasingly dominating, utilizing pr primitive accumulation as a springboard for itself. Now what I'm saying is that as capital becomes more technologically advanced, as the old style primitive accumulation, you know, for instance, you know, real estate, 
um, extraction of oil, uh, the plunder of the commons, of the analog commons, of the seas, of the air, of the, you know, the land. Um, as, this is as this was becoming less and less important in the capacity of capital to accumulate, because you had, you know, the great technologies of, you know, the automobile industry, um, airliners, uh, financialization, and so on. At some point, technology reached a stage with the plunder of the internet commons, not the analog commons, when we went from the first very version of the internet to the second version of the internet, which is effectively taken over by big tech. This, this is the plunder of the internet commons. Uh, and you've got the steady uh, usurpation of markets by e-commerce. Now what you have is a situation where it's not that capital, developing, evolving capital, needs some prime, primary accumulation or primitive accumulation in order to, to feed itself. No, it develops its own variety of digital primitive accumulation a revival of feudalism by digital means. And that is a different mode of production. That's my hypothesis. And the other, I suppose, bit that falls out of this, which, is, which you, you, you hinted at, um, was, well, in that case, look, this is the, the straight Marxist take in this, is that here we have capital. What do you do about capital dominating everything? Well, it creates its opposite, uh, the proletariat, the working class. This is the agency of change in history. If you're saying that this is a new mode of production, uh, and I think you hinted at it with your, your reference to the Amazon worker, who is both being exploited at work, but then there is this wider system of, if not exploitation, extract, extraction via digital means. That, that is where the, the source of power is coming from now under this new mode of production. Where does that leave the proletariat? Who is the agency of change? Because this is a direct challenge to a Marxist or even just a, a socialist or standard sort of leftist view of history is that you go to the working class. What you would suggest here, I think, is that that isn't any more where you'd look for uh, the, the political means to change any of this. Well, now we have two kinds of working class. I mean, you know, my friend Guy Standing would say we have the proletariat and the precariat. I'm not saying something very different, but I want to couch it in my own analytical terms by saying that we have, take Amazon. There are two kinds of workers for Amazon. The waged, the, I call them cloud proles, <laughs> inside, you know, the, the Chris Smalls of the world. The people who organize, and they do very well, and they have our support, and we're very proud of them, inside the warehouses. But there is another kind of worker. There are the cloud serfs. <laughs> people who actually... Um, either try to make a living out of working with Amazon tools. Think of um, um, the Mechanical Turk that is owned by Amazon, hmm? digital workers, or the consumers who are themselves being exploited by actually participating in a market whereby by participating, they are building up the capacity of the cloud capital belonging to Jeff Bezos to alter their behavior. You see, traditionally we think of capital as a produced means of production. And that's what it is. Now, that's what a steam engine was. That was what, a, what, this is what an industrial robot is. It's a produced means of production. Uh, 
But cloud capital is something different. Cloud capital is also a produced means of behavior modification in the interest of the owner of the capital. And the victims of that are everyone. The vast majority of people who are actually working today for Jeff Bezos's cloud capital to be replenished are not people in the warehouses. They are people outside. So what we need to worry about, the question you're asking concerns how do we organize not just the cloud pros, but also the cloud serves the precariat, but also people who don't know they're working, but they're actually working for Bezos. And this is why, for instance, when, you know, and you know this rather well yourself, when it comes to make Amazon pay and the campaigns against Amazon, I've always been of the opinion that it's not enough to organize a strike in warehouses. It's crucial to combine it with a consumer boycott during that particular day. It is crucial to find ways of using cloud capital, cloud, the tools of cloud capital against cloud capital. If we could organize, for instance, um, a campaign which combines solidarity and crowdfunding, on the one hand, with uh, uh, a payment strike, if we could identify, for instance, uh, vulnerable privatized utilities, water boards or um, electricity companies and direct in Yorkshire, let's say, or in Peloponnesus here in Greece, a payment strike for a few weeks, which we support with crowdfunding for the people to pay their fines, for the participants to pay their fines so that they do not suffer personally. That would, we could bring down whole... Uh, segments of what I call the techno-feudal order of cloud capital. We need to start thinking in terms of that, not simply in terms of strikes in warehouses. But then that begs the question, and this might be the, the one to sort of wrap up on, well, then then what is the alternative we're fighting for in this case? The, the classical, again, the classical answer on the left is, you know, you have capitalism, you have its opposite, and socialism is what will overcome this. If you start thinking about a world where if we take your thesis uh, seriously and say, okay, this is the world we're now in, we're facing a new mode of production, what is the new alternative to something that is is techno-feudalism or cloud capitalism or what it might, whatever it might be? What is this new agency going to create if we start to think about what the future might look like? Well, James, you're making it impossible for me not to plug my last book because I, it was exactly I, the fact that I didn't have an answer to this question for many, many years in my life. Let's not forget that Karl Marx always um, skirted that question. He never answered. He never wrote anything about communism, really, <laughs> ever. <laughs> because it's just too difficult. It went into too, too difficult basket. So I was doing the same thing. So I decided that, you know, this is not the 19th century. Now we have to answer this question. Um, what would uh, global socialism look like today? Democratic socialism. So I, I sat down and wrote a political science fiction novel called Another Now. Uh, and in it, I, I try to answer your question. Uh, but let me give you uh, a few, you know, vignettes of my answer. To begin with, uh, I think it's important that we campaign very strongly for um, a new corporate law based on one person, one share, one vote. That's what democracy means and decentralized um, Corpus-syndicalism, as I call it, as opposed to anarcho-syndicalism. So imagine that um, shares were like library cards in the university. 
You get hired, you get one of those. It gives you the right to vote. Um, you leave, you lose it. You can't buy it, you can't sell it, you can't lease it. Suddenly, you know, without having any kind of nationalization of industry, right? You have the socialization and you have, you know, the, 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 the notion of a cooperative translated into corporate legislation. Uh, today, with the technologies we have, with intranets, with applications and so on, it's perfectly possible to run a largish company on the basis of one person, one share, one vote. Doesn't mean everybody should get paid the same. We can have a system whereby bonuses are calculated, are decided democratically. Because if you and me and Helen, let's say some fictitious Helen, get together and form a company, and we both know that Helen is absolutely essential for our company, you and I will, in a majority of two to one, even if she disagrees, give her more money than we get. So, but it will be democratically decided by the shareholders who are every single person from the janitor to the top executives. So that's one. Number two, and the monopoly of the banks on payments. Imagine if a Bank of England were to give everybody a digital wallet and a PIN number, and you could transfer money um, from your digital wallet to mine or to anybody's uh, for free. No payments, then again, this is a very liberal solution because you, you, you don't ban the banks, but you just take away their monopoly over the payment system. And if you do that, then let's say during COVID, instead of giving the money to the private banks, to Barclays and RBS and so on, to hand it over to the conglomerates, supposedly to save the economy from the doldrums of a recession, you just give everybody a basic income. You just you know, uh, put the same amount of money, put a thousand quid into everybody's digital wallet. And indeed, if you can do it during COVID, you can do it constantly. Uh, and at the same time, you can have full transparency so that everybody knows exactly how much money is uh, uh, inside this Bank of England distributed ledger um, so that you have complete anonymity of payments and at the same time, complete transparency so that everybody knows how much money there is in the system. Today, nobody knows how much money there is in the financial circuits of capital. No one has an idea because finances can create money out of thin air. And then they have inflationary bouts and then, then, they, then they slap austerity upon the many because of the money they gave to the few. <laughs> so this is the second example. The third example is at the international level. Imagine we have... Um, a digital version of what John Maynard Keynes proposed in 1944, the International Clearing Union. Uh, so imagine that the SDRs of the IMF are converted to something, I call it the cosmos. Uh, it's a currency that nobody actually uses on a, pers on a personal basis. You don't have it in your digital wallet. You don't have it in your, in your actual wallet. But imagine there is a global accounting unit with all trade and capital movements uh, denominated in this global currency. And imagine there's a free exchange rate between the pound and that cosmos unit, between the dollar and that cosmos unit, and so on. But the deal is that um, every country's or economic bloc's uh, trade surplus or deficit, completely symmetrically, pays a levy of you know, 2 3% to, to the common kitty. And that money goes to the global south in the form of green investments. 
So there's no end to the innovations we can introduce in order to socialize wealth without making it a nightmare of state power over individuals. Um, so in the end, what I'm proposing is a socialist anarcho-syndicalist global system using modern technologies, uh, which once upon a time I would call socialism, but now that socialism has lost its sheen, you know, when uh, the Labour Party or some people in the Labour Party continue them to, them to call themselves socialists, including Keir Starmer. <laughs> you have the Greek Socialist Party that has uh, gone into bed with every oligarchic um, move or move force that has ever been exerted upon this country. I can't call myself socialist anymore or communist. Uh, we need to... I, Please find me another word. <laughs> Not on that um, small, well, I'd say bombshell, but also sort of hanging question. I'd just like to ask one, one final thing. And you've mentioned your own book, but is there perhaps anyone that you'd recommend our, our various listeners might want to pick up and read? Some economists that would be worth digging into, living or dead, or somebody who, who would act as an inspiration for any of these sort of uh, thoughts that you're having? Oh, my goodness. Um the problem with the language of economics, even of progressive economics, is that it is exclusive. It excludes readers who have not been couched in that language. Um, I think that, you know, anything by John Kenneth Galbraith is, is a good read, is an excellent read. Uh, I think that there's always utility to be had by going back to the Great Transformation by Karl Polanyi. And um, even a little book by Robert Heilbronner called The Worldly Philosophers, which is not a lefty book, but nevertheless, it does a very good job of locating the ideas of economics in their historical context in a way that progressives can make quite good use of. That's, a, that's an excellent, excellent selection. And, and thank you very much, Yanis Varoufakis, for your time today. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.